Well, today's scripture comes from the gospel according to Mark chapter 9. We're going to read verses 30 through 50. I'm going to read in the ESV. We'll have the scripture projected behind me. Feel free to find it uh, if you brought a Bible or a pew Bible or uh, you have a Bible app. And uh, uh, it is a little bit of a longer passage, uh, but we just ask that you read along silently as I read this passage. Um, and again, it's Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 50. May the Lord bless the reading of God's word for us. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Well, friends, uh, just to let you in a little bit on uh, my sermon prep process, how I uh, make the slides that you see every week. Um, I take the previous week's sermon as a template and, you know, I can reuse, like, like the title slide. Uh, and, um, you know, obviously I have to take out some of the old images and, you know, delete some of the old slides when I do this. But um, it, it made me chuckle this week as I was putting together the slides because uh, today's message is called The Greatest Loser. And the first slide that popped up after the title slide was this picture I used last week of, <laughs> of a Detroit Lions player and with the caption, why your team sucks. And just, you know, this idea of the greatest loser, you know, because a few years ago, uh, the Detroit Lions actually had, they were the greatest losers in NFL history. 
They had the first team to lose every single game in a season. They were 0-16 that year. And I remember when they were 0-15, it was kind of depressing. But at that point, if you talk to any like Lions fan, they're like, you know what? I actually want to see them lose next week. Because might as well, right? They're not going anywhere. Might as well just, you know, if you're going to be bad, be the best at being bad, right? And it's funny because uh, this year, uh, I think that was like 2011 when it happened for the Lions. But this year, the Cleveland Browns matched that record. They were also 0-16, the second team to do it. And it was so funny because the, the Browns fans showed up by the thousands for a parade. You know, like the Philadelphia Eagles, after they won the Super Bowl, they had a parade. But they had an 0-16 parade. This is true. This is actually a, a picture of the parade. They had some, like, hilarious signs. You see that sign in the middle? That's my favorite. They tried. They tried. I guess they tried. I mean, they didn't try that hard, I guess. But, you know, it's like, hey, if we're going to be bad, you know, like, might as well be the best at being bad. You know, and, and it, it, it's kind of funny because... I think it was like ironic and, you know, people thought it was funny, but we really don't like losing. It was part, you know, ironic celebration of having a historically bad season, but it was also part protest because the Browns have been so bad for so long and the Cleveland fans are like, hey, we're sick of this, right? Like we're so bad, we hate losing. Do you hate losing? I think for a lot of us, it's just like almost like a natural thing. You know, it's so silly because... Even if you're playing like a board game or something, you know, some of you, you hate losing even a board game. If you think about it, if you win that board game, you're not really winning anything, right? There's no great reward for winning a board game. If you lose a board game, there's no great, yeah, this is great. It's on the loop. <laughs> just <laughs> so mad, right? It's like James Bond just throwing a Monopoly board in your face, you know? Maybe some of you feel that way. You know, you hate losing. You know, you love to win. You're super competitive, um, at, at my church, when I was uh, uh, serving as a youth pastor in, in seminary, uh, I was part of the young adult group. And after a while, we had to stop having game nights because some of the, the people there got so competitive, they would make people cry. We would play Taboo, and you got the buzzer, right? And they were, like, so competitive. They, like, put it right in their ear. And people were like, man, I'm not playing with you anymore. <laughs> this is not of Christ, right? This is making me hate you. So... Friends, what is up with that? We, we hate losing and we love winning. And I wonder if it is tied to this idea that we want to, well, you know, what is a winner? A winner is somebody that we think is great in some way. We want to be great. And I think a lot of us, we are chasing this. In the church, you know, that doesn't seem like a very spiritual thing to say, like, oh, I want to be great. There's lots of scripture about being humble and how, you know, the last shall be first, the first shall be last. So I think Christians, we still want to be great, but we have like Christian ways of saying that, right? Like, I want to make a difference, right? Like, like, like I, I want to, I, I just, you know, uh, want to have impact on this world, right, for Christ. You know, for me as a pastor, and I think a lot of pastors, if they're being honest, you know, like we feel that way. Like, hey, if I'm going to be a pastor, I want to be a great pastor, pastor of a big church. You know, I want to have a big platform. Of course, of course, to bring glory to God, right? It's about God, you know. But, hey, why not have the biggest impact possible, right? You know, what about for us? Isn't that like sort of the battle cry of, you know, a lot of people today, 
We want to be great. We want to be significant. We want to matter. So many people I talk to, you know, we are so worried about being insignificant. And when you go looking for jobs or, you know, when you think about your future, a lot of people, we are chasing the shadow of wanting to be great, of not wanting to be insignificant. I just Googled for funsies, you know, I want to be significant, you know, and and what, what I came up with is, you know how like people, they like those kind of like memes or they like a picture with like an inspirational quote. And I saw this one and it said, not just seen, I want to be significant. And it's kind of funny because I think some people, they use this unironically. They're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't want to just be seen. I want to be significant. And the funny thing about this is, is you can see it says Claire Underwood. Claire Underwood is not a real person. Claire Underwood is a fictional character from House of Cards. If you guys have seen House of Cards, she is the wife of Frank Underwood, who is this conniving, power-hungry senator. And she is equally power-hungry and, and conniving. And uh, I, I read this. Uh, uh, some, somebody wrote about the character, Claire Underwood, who is played by uh, Robin Wright. And they described her as, um, uh, let's see, it says, she is a woman who will stop at nothing to conquer everything, right? It doesn't matter, like whatever it takes, like if it takes lying, cheating, stealing, killing, right? She'll do anything to get to the top, right? And, and I think a lot of us, we can say, okay, that's not good, right? But you got to wonder, what price do we pay for wanting to be great, for wanting to be significant? We, we, we look at that, and in this world, we have no problems with that. What about for us, if we want to be a Christ follower, if we want to build the kingdom of God, can we fit in that idea of being significant with the idea of being someone who follows after Christ? And so, what about you, friends? Maybe you feel that in your life. Hey, I just want to matter. I just want my life to be significant. I want to have impact. You know, friends, I have to be honest. Oftentimes I feel the same way. But I think there's a challenge there. First of all, I think we need to acknowledge that. Stop just hiding it in Christian language, right? But acknowledge that that's there for a lot of us. We do want to be significant, right? In many ways, it is a very human desire, But I want us to take a look at some of the challenges that maybe Jesus would have for that way of thinking. And so let's just dive into the passage. Um, It's a lot of connected stories and teachings of Jesus together. And I do think that there is a common thread through all of them. And so we're told that uh, uh, they went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he didn't want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, and friends, this isn't the first time we've heard this teaching. Um, but it is a common teaching throughout the Gospels. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Jesus didn't hide the fact that this is where his ministry was going. He didn't hide the fact that he was fated to die at the hands of men. He was going to be murdered. Jesus knew it, he taught it, and... The disciples, they couldn't hear it. They like literally couldn't hear it. They couldn't understand what he was saying. That's what it tells us in verse 32. They did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. 
And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? So after he teaches them, hey, I'm going to die. I'm going to be murdered. And they're like, what does that mean? I don't know. So they start talking amongst themselves. But what are they talking about? It's very interesting. Very, very interesting. The juxtaposition between Jesus' teaching. I'm going to die. And then the disciples are like, I don't know what that means. Okay, let's talk. Let's talk. And what they're talking about tells us in verse 34, when Jesus asked them this, what are you talking about? They keep silent. They're kind of embarrassed. Because on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Right? Like, oh, yo, Peter, you think you're all that, but I'm better than you. You know, you, you keep sticking your foot in your mouth. Yeah, you walked on the water, but then you sank. Right? <laughs> like talking trash to each other. Uh, psh, I'm better than you. I really should be second in command. I really should be on the right hand of Jesus when he comes in glory. I should be the vice Christ, you know? <laughs> I should be the next in line. That's what they're talking about. So ironic. Because just moments before, Jesus is talking about dying. He's, a talk, he's talking about taking a loss, a big loss, the loss of his life. Why couldn't they hear that or understand that? You see, and, and this was a few weeks ago, when Jesus was teaching this, Peter rebukes him, right? No, Jesus, no. Stop teaching that, no. And we made the point that perhaps the reason why Peter was so adamantly against it is because he understood that as a disciple of Jesus, to follow in the footsteps of his rabbi, his master, that meant that he was supposed to live a similar kind of life as Jesus. If Jesus goes to die, if Jesus goes to suffer, then what is in store for his disciple? Same thing. Peter probably recognized that Jesus was in a way saying, hey, you know what? You're going to have to take a loss too. And he didn't want to hear that. He didn't want to understand that. The disciples, they literally cannot comprehend this. And instead of talking about that, hey, what does this mean? They're afraid to ask. They're afraid what that might mean. So instead, what do they do? They talk about how great they are. Isn't this what we do, friends, in some ways? Maybe this is what our quest for significance is about. We're so afraid of losing that we chase greatness to mask that fear of being insignificant, of not mattering. We want so much to be great and to be recognized people because we think that that's going to insulate us from the possibility that we might actually lose. I mean, for a lot of us, we're like, hey, I want to be significant. I want to be remembered forever. It's a kind of immortality, isn't it? Hey, I want them to write, like, you know, textbooks about me, you know? I want my, my picture or, like, you know, I want a statue of me somewhere. Why do we want that? Because we're so afraid of death. We're so afraid of dying and being, fading away and not being remembered, right? And the disciples, they're so afraid of that, that to take their minds off the possibility of that loss, we just talk about, hey, I'm a pretty great guy. <laughs> I'm greater than you. 
And so Jesus, he, he wants to teach them otherwise. He says, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all, the servant of all. And friends, what Jesus is saying is that, hey, you know what? Some of the impulses that you have are not bad, but you're going about it the wrong way. If you truly want to be great, you actually have to be last. It's, it's a weird kind of logic. It doesn't make sense to us. But Jesus tries to explain it. You've got to serve, not be served. The way most of us think about greatness in this life is being served. Like, man, if I make it, I'm going to have servants, right? Going to wait on me hand and foot. If I go to a hotel, I want room service. They're going to bring the food to me. I don't have to go get my own food, make my own food. Someone else will bring it for me. I'm going to have a personal chef. I'm going to have you know, someone who chauffeurs me around. That is still today the definition of greatness for us. To be served. When other people serve me, that means I made it. Right? It hasn't changed. But for Jesus, he says, no, you got it wrong. If you want to be great, you have to be the one who serves. And to illustrate the point, he takes a child and he takes him in his arms. And he says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. There's, there's a few things going on here. Um, you, we're going to find out um, in the next chapter, we're going to see again Jesus taking a child. And it keeps happening again and again. And you see, you're going to see the disciples not want to receive the child. Hey, kid, get out of here. You know, Jesus doesn't have time for you. You don't have time to mess around with kid stuff. Get out of here. Right? The adults are talking, okay? Get out of here, kid. You know, but Jesus is like, no, no, no. You, you got to receive the child, right? Why were the disciples so afraid of accepting children? <laughs> and hey, we don't have time for you. Because they're obsessed with greatness. You know, kids don't really matter. Kids don't have money. You know, if a kid likes you, it doesn't really benefit me. It doesn't bring me much power. But if we can get important people to follow us, that's who we want. People who can give lots of money to our cause, that's who we want. Right? They have power. They have influence. They have money. Kid has nothing. But Jesus says, you've got to receive the child. You've got to receive the child. You've got to become like the child. That's going to be the next teaching when he talks about children. But he says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Jesus puts himself on a similar level as the child. If you receive the child, you receive me. If you receive me, then you receive the one who sends me. Why? Because Jesus is talking about power. That's what they're obsessed with, greatness, power. He says, hey, you can't understand my teaching because what I'm saying is I'm giving up the power, right? I'm not here to take the power. I'm not here to go and kill and conquer. Actually, I'm the one who's going to get killed. And if you can't receive that, if you can't receive me in my poverty and my powerlessness, then you cannot receive the one who sent me. You can't receive God. If you can't receive that, if you can't receive that powerlessness. And then in the very next breath, John, one of the disciples said, teacher, 
We saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he was not following us. And friends, you know, you can kind of see, again, it's like these, these sort of power things going on, right? You know, hey, you're not doing it like us. You're not on our team. You're not on our side. Stop, right? Well, why, why is that important? Why is that important for us? You know, even as a church, uh, for, for pastors, I have to think about that too. Whose kingdom am I really building? Am I building my kingdom? If somebody comes to my church, and, and I'm just being real, guys, this as a pastor, I, I really have to do a lot of heart checking. If someone comes to my church, and for whatever reason, whatever reason, you know, maybe there's a church that's closer. Maybe that's a church that aligns theologically more with somebody. Maybe there's a church where they have better opportunities to serve. And someone decides to not go to my church, my church. <laughs> Even that in and of itself is wrong, right? To think it's my church. That's the way we think of it. Somebody doesn't go to my church, but they go to another church. Do I have a problem with that? Does it hurt me? Does it hurt my ego? Like, oh. Why do you not want to go to my church? Right? Like, oh, they're going to another church. Does that make me sad? I heard this story about, um, there's this pastor who runs this website that I would go and visit. Um, you know, a few years ago, when I was very unhappy about um, being in a small church, I'm just being honest, I would dream and fantasize about one day being in a mega church. Right? And I stumbled upon this website it was called, you know, Small Church Pastors or something like that. And this guy was like, hey, you know what? I'm a small church pastor, and I'm not ashamed of that. And he talked about this, this one moment that really crystallized the idea that, you know, maybe chasing after that great big church isn't, isn't what it's all cracked up to be. Maybe those motivations aren't really about God. But it's about something else. He talked about how his church and many churches uh, were invited um, to like one of these Christian concerts where, you know, you get like a bunch of different worship bands and, and uh, uh, famous Christian singers to come. And they would do an altar call there. A speaker would invite people to accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And then, you know, these people would come to the front. They prayed for them. And then the volunteers gave them a little card, a contact card. And they told the people, hey, you know what? We're going to give your information to a local church because the next step for you after you accept Christ as your Lord and Savior is you should get involved in a church so you can continue to grow, right? And so people gladly, they put down their information, right? And so they invited all of the local pastors backstage. And they had this big pile of cards on a table. And they're like, hey, you know, just, we would love for you to try to engage these people, get them plugged into your church, right? And before the person could even finish talking, there were some people who came from like a really, really big church, a mega church, maybe the biggest church in that area. And people just started, like they opened up their book bags uh, and they just started putting cards in, right? Just like, right? Like, like elbowing people, right? To get to these cards. And this pastor and his volunteers, they were looking at that and they're like, what is this? What, what are we doing? The volunteers, they, they looked at their pastor like, Pastor, this makes me sick. If, if this is how you do church, I don't want any part of this. They can have the cards. What is that about, friends? Whose kingdom are we building? When we look at another church and we're like, you, you, you know, you say the right things. Oh, yeah, yeah, we're on the same team. Right? 
But really, you're like, hmm, don't like those guys. <laughs> and, and of course, we have good theological reasons for that. Oh, their theology's off, or, you know, they're, they're not doing it the right way. And what does Jesus have to say, you know, to this person who's not doing it with them? They, you know, and, and they're like, hey, he's casting out demons in your name. I just feel like he's just using you, Jesus. You know, maybe that guy just has, you know, like bad, uh, 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 bad intentions. You know, he just wants to hop on the bandwagon to get some followers for himself. So he's like, oh, in Jesus' name. They're like, mm, you're not with Jesus. We're with Jesus. You don't know Jesus. We know Jesus. And Jesus says, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. That's a pretty wide statement when it comes to other believers. He doesn't say they got to get all the theology right. The people who get checked by me and I look at them and, and I just check off all the theological boxes, all the right beliefs, those people, those people are on our side too. They're in the same denomination. You know, those people are on our side. Jesus says, if they're, it's very, very broad. But the one who is not against us is for us. Right? That's all this takes is just don't be against us. And then you're for us, right? You know, Jesus' perspective is much wider. And Jesus, you see in him so often, there's no ego there, right? Just in the very beginning of this passage, again, we see Jesus taking his disciples aside without the benefit of all the crowds hearing. He would do these, these uh, miracles and he would do them when no one was looking. He would tell his followers, don't tell other people what you saw right here. And, and for Jesus, I mean, there was a plan that God had for him. But he didn't think to himself, how can I get the most followers? How can I become the greatest? How can I get the biggest church? That wasn't Jesus' goal. His goal was always, how do I heal people? How do I bring about the kingdom? For some of us, we think it's the same thing. But for Jesus, it was very important how you did it. If you going about trying to build the kingdom causes division, elbowing people out of the way, hey, stop, stop, you're not of us. If that's the way you do it, it's not the kingdom. That's not what I'm trying to bring about. And, And he even goes even farther to say, um, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Whenever I hear this passage preached, that verse, um, people always say children, right? They're like, oh, he's talking about children because he was talking about children before. But remember, some time has passed. We kind of, I'm not saying we moved on from the children. Maybe Jesus is still holding the child, right? And he does say little one, right? Um, It doesn't say child, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. The question I have, friends, is how does that connect to what we just heard about not stopping other people from being able to preach the gospel or other people who are trying to work for the kingdom, but they're not doing it in your way? Right? I think what Jesus is saying is that the little ones, the vulnerable ones, the ones that you are reaching out to for Christ, they get so hurt when they see how divisive we are. 
when they see how ambitious and power hungry we are. When we think the ends justify the means and we can do anything because we're doing it in the name of God, those people are being stumbled. We're causing those people to sin. And in many cases, friends, the people that you disciple in the church, they're going to be discipled based on how you live your life. How we do ministry is almost as important, if not more important, than what you actually say in ministry. I, I know some people may not agree with that. You know, oh, no, 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 you need the right theology, you need the right beliefs. But I see passages like this, and I see Jesus saying, what you are doing, how you do it, how you conduct yourself, how you live your life, how you preach the gospel, how you treat other Christians, that is equally important. Because, friends, you will stumble people. People will look at your actions and they get disgusted. They're like, oh my gosh, is that what church is like? We only care about our little kingdoms. The ends justify the means. I mean, you know, I know it's a little extreme, but that's kind of like the, the Claire Underwood type thing, the, the Frank Underwood, you know? Ruthlessly, hey, you know what? Ends justify the means. Hey, I got to pass this legislation. You know, I, I, I'm going to do greater good in the end. And so who cares if I screw over a few people? Who, who cares if some people get hurt? It, it doesn't matter because what I'm trying to do is important. It has impact. But friends, when we really, at the end of the day, we have to ask that question, why are we so obsessed with that? Is it because we are afraid of being insignificant? Is it because we ultimately want to be the ones who get the credit, who feel like we matter, like the disciples, right? I don't think it's a mistake that they're getting mad at other people. Oh, you're not, you're not with us. You're, you're not on our side. When they were so obsessed with fleeing that possibility of death and loss and wanting to be great in their own eyes. And then Jesus goes on to say, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. I know this, this teaching is, is very strange, right? You know, I, I, I don't think, and I think most of us would probably agree, Jesus is not telling you to tear out your eye, right? He's speaking metaphorically. But what is he talking about then? He says... Hey, if something is causing you to sin, is holding you back from where God wants you to be, it is better to take a loss, right? To take a loss. Lose a hand, lose a foot, lose an eye. I pointed at my eye and said foot. <laughs> right? Lose a foot, lose an eye. It is better to lose that instead of losing what? Your whole body, everything, Right? What was the teaching before when we were talking about, about loss? It says, whoever tries to gain their life will lose it. But whoever is willing to lose their life for my sake, for the sake of the gospel, will gain it. Right? That what Jesus is saying is that we are so afraid of taking losses. But sometimes when you take a loss, you are able to bring about much good. Right? And so... 
You know, we think about sacrifice and we think about the ways that we love one another. You know, for a lot of us, you know, losing an eye or losing a hand or losing a foot, that's a pretty significant loss. You know, and a lot of us aren't willing to get there. A lot of us aren't willing to do that. But friends, why is that so important? Think about with Jesus. Why did Jesus go to the cross? Did he just do it to prove a point? No, he did it to love us, to sacrificially love us, to die for our sins. There was a purpose to it, right? And oftentimes in this world, to really love people, you are going to have to take a loss. There's going to be something that you're going to have to give up in order to do that. I mean, just think about, like, in a very, very practical, simple way. So many people who are poor don't have money, right? Have you ever had a case where, um, <laughs> this, this happens to me, in this day and age, a lot of us, we don't carry cash. And I was talking to someone about this, how uh, nowadays, oh, I guess, yeah, there's some people in the adult family group. We were talking about how, like, when you go to the ATM machine, you can only get a denomination of 20, right? You can't get, like, $1. You can't go get $5, right? And so oftentimes when we have cash, like, you'll just have, like, a 20. You know, a lot of people don't even carry cash anymore. You ever, like, been walking down the street and someone asks you for money? Like a poor person asks you for money, and you, you know in your wallet you got a bunch of 20s. And, and so, so what do you say? Ah, I don't have any money, right? I don't have any money. What do I really mean by that? I don't have any money that I'm willing to give you, right? If I had $1 in there, maybe even $5, I might be willing to give you that, but not the $20. Why? Feels like a loss. Feels like a significant loss. Right? I mean, you know, I heard people say, like, isn't it funny? I spend $20 on myself, I don't even think about it. But if I spend $20 on a poor person that I don't know, I'm going to be thinking about that for the rest of the day. Like, mm, they should have been more grateful, you know? <laughs> what could I have done with that $20? Like, really? I gave them $20? I don't know if that was the right thing. Man, I should get more change. I should just have, like, singles. Friends, I'm not going to lie. I have money in my pocket right now like because we went to see a movie with the family group and, and they paid me back. And some people gave me singles. And I remember thinking like, great, I have singles. Next time I see a homeless person, now I have singles, right? We are so wicked. I am such a wicked person. I am so unwilling to take that loss. Um, you know, I, I, I heard this, that, um, that there are uh, a lot of times when you... Uh, go to a store, they ask you if you want to give money. Have you noticed this? They're like, would you like to donate a dollar to, uh, you know, combat diabetes or, you know, to uh, get wheelchairs for cats or whatever it is, right? It, it literally doesn't matter. It literally doesn't matter what the cause is. But you know why they do that, friends? Yeah, you know, maybe in some sense they're like, hey, we want to help people, right? But it's always like, do you want to give a dollar, Right? And, and, and what they found is that people, when you spend money on yourself, there's a part of you that deep down inside you're like, oh, I'm spending all this money on myself. And if you are given the opportunity to be a little generous, like, oh, yeah, I just spent $200 on myself, on clothes I don't really need. But if I give a dollar so a poor cat can have a wheelchair, I'm going to feel awesome about myself. You know what? I'm a pretty generous guy. You know, I spent $200 on my own clothes, but... <laughs> That cat is going to not have to crawl anymore. <laughs> you know, it's going to have a wheelchair. That's pretty awesome. I guess I am a pretty generous guy, right? But one thing that they don't do 
I, mean, I, I just, I've never come across this. Let me know if you ever come across this. I have never been to the cash register and, and whatever I spent, they asked me, hey, would you like to match what you spent on yourself to help someone else? You spent $100 on clothes. You want to spend $100 on someone who is actually probably more in need than you. Because most of us, I mean, very, very few of us would be like, oh, yeah, 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 I want to do that. Why? It feels like too much of a loss. It's too much of a loss, Right? Friends, what is it going to take for us to be the people that God wants us to be? One thing I want to say is we need to stop being so afraid of taking losses. Whatever that might be, sacrifices, you know, or, or the just ordinary losses that we take in life. You know? We, we need to stop trying to be great in our own eyes and realize that What is really great in God's eyes is when we are willing to take a loss for someone else, like Jesus. Giving up the hand, giving up the foot, you know, all those kinds of things, you may think like, oh, okay, that's just so I can get into heaven. It's not really what it's about, right? I mean, John 3, 16, you guys all know it, right? You you believe in God, you know, and that's all it takes. It's because of what Jesus has done for you. But saying that you are going to lose a bigger part of you if you are not willing to sacrifice. And you are going to lose this part of you that, as it says in in Scripture for the rest of it, it talks about being salty. (laughs) Um, Everyone will be salted with fire. What does fire do? It burns. You take a loss with fire. It says salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Friends, what do you get when you have Christians who can't be generous? Who can't be giving? Who aren't willing to sacrifice? What do you get? You have Christians that aren't Christians at all. I think that's what Jesus is talking about. If you lose your saltiness, that flavor that makes us distinctive, it is that willingness to take losses for other people. And nowadays, so many of us as Christians, we're all about God. Oh yeah, praise God, praise God, praise God, praise God. But not so much about sacrifice. Not so much about giving. Not so much about generosity. Not so much about even being willing to suffer for the sake of someone else. Oh yeah, we'll do it when it's convenient for us. But so will anyone who's at a cash register and you're spending $200 on yourself and you just kind of want to feel better about yourself. We'll gladly do that. There's nothing distinctive about that. When it's not a loss, it really isn't of Christ in the sense that Christ-like love is when it is a sacrifice, when it hurts. That's what makes... Christ's love, so distinctive, so special. I just wanted to end, you know, with us thinking about the title of the message. It is the greatest loser. And and I've been trying to tell you that for us to become great, we must be willing to lose. And I I just, you know, I I was thinking about Jesus on the cross, and I found this picture that I thought was kind of funny. I was like, really? Like, you see Jesus on the cross, and he's like breaking out, like he's ripped, right? Those gains, bro, right? <laughs> look, at, look at Jesus, you know? 
Uh, I think some of us would really like this Jesus. Look at that Jesus. That Jesus isn't suffering. That Jesus is taking, you know, uh, victory into his own hands. He is ripping free from that cross, right? But that is not the the true Christ. The true Christ is this. Jesus on the cross, bleeding. And, and I've mentioned this before, but um, all of the depictions we have of Jesus with the loincloth, uh, from the scholars that I read, um, that's not accurate. Um, Jesus would have been naked. Why? Because crucifixion was a form of Roman punishment where it wasn't just about pain, it was about embarrassment. That's why they put you on display. They didn't just flog you in a private room and kill you where, in a prison where no one would see you. They put you on display. So you would have been naked. Naked and exposed and bleeding. Friends, you ever think about that? That is our Lord, our Master. And yes, we should be very, very thankful. He did that for us. He did that to love us. He did that to love us. Who is the greatest loser? It's Jesus. He is the greatest loser. His loss is what allows us to know the very love of God. Friends, I mean, you know, there are Christians who actually have given up their lives for other people. We call them martyrs, right? And a lot of the early Christians would do this. And as far as I can tell from the accounts that I read, um, from what they tell us in Scripture, they did it gladly. They didn't really see it as a loss. I mean, they knew that ultimately, you know, God held their lives in their hands. There's nothing that the world could take from them, that they weren't willing to give up to gain all that God had for them. They were willing to do it. And in this day and age, friends, I I just want us to be really honest. We worship comfort. We worship significance and greatness. And we want it so bad that even for churches today, we aren't willing to really embrace this kind of Christ, this kind of Christian who is willing to sacrifice and give up all things for other people, to give up our power for other people. Whatever that loss might be, love, it's always going to involve that. It's always going to take some kind of a risk. There's something that we have to be willing to give up. And I wonder if that's why so many people, they look at the church and it's like eating a dish without salt. They're they're just like, what is this? What is this bland thing that you're trying to pass off as Christianity? It looks like everything else we see in this world where people are chasing greatness. People are not willing to sacrifice. People are not willing to genuinely love. What would it mean, friends, if we started standing up for people who didn't have a voice? Would we take a loss? Maybe. Maybe we'll be in the firing line too. Maybe we're going to take the ire of people who don't like those people we're standing up for. What would it look like if we genuinely love the poor? Yeah, we have all kinds of explanations. Ah, they don't deserve it. They don't work hard, right? And what is the implication? 
Only people who deserve things like money, only people who worked hard for it should get these things. Is that Christianity or is that the culture of greatness, of achievement? Jesus is saying the last shall be first, not the first shall be first. Oh, you earned it, so you get it. It's not what Jesus is saying. What would it look like, friends, if we genuinely sacrifice? I'll tell you, I I just want to maybe just dream just for a second. Like, really, let's think about this. What would our church look like if we really, really sacrifice for other people? I think the world would notice. I think people would look at the church and say, man, there is something special and amazing about the way that this church loves people. They don't have to. In fact, they're taking a loss. I know that's not easy to do for them. I know that's not something that directly benefits them, but look at this amazing love and sacrifice. Isn't that why people notice Jesus in the first place? Because he did this for us. So friends, um, I just want to take a moment because I know that's not an easy thing to hear in this day and age. In this day and age, that is not what our culture is pushing us towards. And if we're being really honest, it's not what our churches are teaching either. And so maybe just take a moment to just let that sink in. I can ask Eric to come up. And to maybe just ask that question for ourselves. Jesus, am I really willing to receive you? You are the greatest loser. You lost everything for us. When you taught us that you had to be the servant of all to be great. That the first shall be last and the last shall be first. That what it's going to take to bring peace in this world, what it's going to take to love people, You've got to be willing to take on those losses. You've got to be willing to confront death itself. Jesus, you did that. You did that. Am I willing to receive that? Am I willing to receive that example? Whatever that may mean for my life. Friends, I, I'm not even going to go there. You know, I, I don't think this is the kind of message where we can automatically say, hey, this is what you got to do. I just want us to soak in that for me. What an amazing gift. What an amazing love. Let's just receive Let's just receive the gift from this greatest loser. The gift of everything given for us. Let's receive that. Son, Jesus Christ, you have taught us all about sacrificial love. You have taught us about humility. You have taught us about a love that is willing to bleed 
willing to hurt, willing to take losses. We just want to receive that. God, and not to just say that we're thankful, God, but that we are willing to follow you. We're willing to follow you. We don't know what that means yet, fully. We don't know what that's going to ask of us, God. But Lord, that is my heart. And I may be willing to follow you, God, wherever you lead, whatever you would ask me to do. And to know, God, that you love us, that even the losses that look like losses are truly losses. We gain so much more in you. Lord, learning to be a generous, loving, sacrificial church. What an awesome vision of what the church is meant to be. God, maybe that's why you ask us to take up our cross. So that the world can see an amazing love that they are missing. An amazing love that transforms all of the ways that we think about life. What we think makes life worthwhile. Teach us, God. Teach us your way. Teach us, God, what the cross truly means. Teach us, God, what your ultimate sacrifice means for us and the world. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.